Usually by then I try to not look at my phone. I, I'm been, working on it. Tough, yeah. I've been I'm there at 11 at night and I'm still like... <laughs> Welcome to the Living Wild Podcast. You're here to talk about real foods, real ingredients, and you're going to talk about it with real people. Your hosts, Marcy and Jamie, take it away. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Living Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Marcy Marbutt. Today, Miss Jamie is out of the office, but we have a awesome guest co-host who is usually our producer, LaDon. Hey, guys. How are you guys doing? Usually I'm behind the scene, but here I am hosting today. Yes, we're very excited to, to have LaDon chime in. We also have a very special guest, Mrs. Sunny Newman. Sunny, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a registered nurse. I'm not practicing right now. I'm a stay-at-home mom. For the last year, I've been raising a small human and studying functional medicine through the Institute for Functional Medicine. That's just kind of been what's consumed my time, but it's been really good. I love what it promotes, and I think it kind of gets people back the basics and kind of what's important and what's also not important right. uh, in our lives, especially with food. So for those who don't know, what is functional medicine? Functional medicine is really, and I group in functional nutrition as well, because I think food's equally as important as like the medicinal part. A food is medicine, if you ask a lot of people. So functional medicine really aims to get down to the root of a problem. So if you have an issue, it really goes down to looking back to what could possibly be the starting point to that issue that you're having. Whereas a lot of times in conventional medicine, we like to give people a pill or a prescription for something, which not to say that pharmaceuticals don't have a place in right. our lives. They definitely do. But I think as a nation, we probably are maybe overusing them. And I think functional medicine is looking to really heal those problems like from the root cause rather than mm. looking downstream and giving patients medications just to start. Right. Yeah. Just before we started officially recording the podcast, we were talking to Sunny about how she recently moved from Belgium, of all places. And for those of you who don't know, we are in Austin, Texas, so that's pretty far away. Tell us a little bit about what the difference is in you know, the way they look at functional medicine versus the United States, because I thought it was pretty interesting. I think they probably just... To begin with, and not necessarily from a functional medicine perspective, I think there are practitioners, but they kind of live life in a more simpler way for the most part. I mean, obviously, they have internet and phones. It's mm -hmm. not like they're <laughs> living in a cave. They walk most places, and the cities are typically more walkable, but they do all these things like they'll take the stairs, and a lot of places don't have elevators, so you might be going up three or four flights of stairs, and that's something they do just every day. They don't have that, like, go, 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 like, I need that next person motion. I'm going to work all weekend for the next three months so I can do this. Definitely, they work so that they can play. So it's very much like they, they enjoy themselves, I would say. Would you say that the restaurant food over there is a little bit different than here? I do know that in Europe... They have banned glyphosate, so Roundup oh, wow. is yeah. banned in Europe. That's big. The last time that I checked it was. Now, I haven't checked recently. I don't know what legislation they have going on at this current moment. They, At the time that we lived there, glyphosate was banned. So they might use other herbicides and things like that, but did not use Roundup and pesticides like that, I believe. And this is a little off topic in terms of skincare and cosmetics and things. They have thousands and thousands. I want to say it's like 80,000 chemicals banned, whereas in the last... Like 50 plus years, that's a 
rough estimate. I could find you the exact number, but I think the United States has only banned 15 chemicals. Wow. 15, wow. that's a one five. That's incredible. Whereas they have thousands of chemicals banned that are not allowed to be used in their cosmetics. So, which is kind of scary to me. It is. And, but I'm just shaking my head because it, it doesn't surprise me. Exactly. <laughs> and that's, that sucks. Actually, we did a video on how to wash your fruits and vegetables. The research for that, I learned that the American Academy of Pediatrics warned in 2012 that early life exposure to pesticides, including glyphosate, is associated with pediatric cancers, decreased cognitive function, and behavioral problems. So it's it's unbelievable that this is still being allowed. Yeah. It's amazing. And I know there are a lot of lawsuits right now pending and going through with uh, Monsanto, of course, and lymphomas, So, which would have been like the end result of having been exposed to too much glyphosate. Tell us about your work in this field of functional nutrition and medicine. What is your normal process that you lead people through when you're trying to get to the root of living their best life? Well, when I take on a new client, I will do kind of an intake assessment form, and it's usually pretty extensive, and it starts just with their health history, and I try to make that pretty extensive because a lot of times I think people might overlook things that could have be a cause to something and not really know. Mm -hmm. So something that might seem kind of like it doesn't matter, you know, that happened so long ago, it can't matter. I try to take an account to any like significant thing that's happened in their life. So a good health history, a nutrition history, and I usually do a food journal. So about two weeks, I'll have them just write down everything they eat is like, taxing as that might seem, pain in the butt. It's a good way to identify things that they might be eating on a day-to-day basis that could be something that they don't need. Causing inflammation. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And removing those things can help the gut heal, can decrease inflammation. And it also allows me to look at things like I could add something else in that place, you know, like kind of replace it with something a little bit better. So for instance, if they've been using canola oil, which is a very processed vegetable oil, I'll try and say, okay, how about we try avocado oil? Mm. It's got a very high heat index. It's not going to reach its smoke point. It's got a good amount of omega-3s in it, so it's not super inflammatory. That's where I start with the nutrition. And then from there, we'll just go on to different recipes they could do. And then just general kind of guidelines that I think are important in the kitchen, kind of how to balance your plate with vegetables and meats and things like that. And then I'll go over physical activity and whether that just be like a walk in the morning, like a 15 minute walk just to get your day going, get out in the sun. Being exposed to the sun first thing in the morning can be a really important thing to like help wake you up, set your circadian rhythm in the right way, addressing like your spiritual, religious aspect whether that be like a religious component, do you go to church? Do you have a church family? Do you pray? Or just more like meditation? Do you practice gratitude? How do you feel connected mm-hmm. to people? And having a community of people that you can talk to every day and like, you know, your good friends, your family, just staying close. People that you feel that you really connect with is really right. important. Isn't it interesting that there's all these different facets of life that people don't think about doing that would cause them to live such a richer life, you Mm -hmm. know? And it's little things you can do. And sleep's another huge one. Mm -hmm. So trying to, I try and go to bed 
between nine and ten, and usually by then I try to not look at my phone. I I'm been, working on that's it. Tough, yeah. I've been I'm there at eleven at night and I'm scrolling <laughs> through something, but trying to make a conscious effort to you know do it at nine o'clock and then you know by nine thirty put it down. You're gonna decrease your exposure to the blue light mm-hmm. because that sends signals to your brain saying, "Hey, it's time to be up." Like, let's have you tried the blue away. blue blockers? I have, and I'm not consistent with them yet. Okay. So, but I have noticed sometimes at night when I'm looking at my phone, like my eyes hurt. And so the times that I've done that and then put them on the next night instead, like I have noticed a difference. I need to use them more often, more frequently and be good about that. So I think they do help. What I've noticed with the blue blockers is I have better sleep when I use them. Like I have less interruptions. It just seems to be deeper, especially according to my Fitbit because it tracks sleep. But blue blockers are pretty cool. And for those of you who are listening, you can find them on Amazon for like $15. I got some really cute ones. And it's worth it. I mean, it's yeah. it's not that much something you just, you know, use in the evenings. Or And my husband actually, when he got his new prescription for glasses, he got the kind with the blue light blocking in it. So someone who's on his computer all day, I think it's really important for people right. who have like a desk job are staring at a device all day. Totally. You know, you can filter some of that light out. I say this, all of this is I'm like, I have a big, bright computer screen right in front of me. But let's talk about inflammation because it's something that you mentioned earlier. And I think a lot of people, they hear the word inflammation. Like, Lenon, when you hear the word inflammation, what do you think of? Flames. <laughs> <laughs> flames. Okay. Well, that's that's one thing. Even though it has nothing to do with flames, <laughs> it's like the word well, inflammation. I think the root of the word, it actually is, it, it means flame, fire, flame. Yes, that's, yeah, totally. That is the root of the word for sure. Fireflame. That was my screen name when I was <laughs> um, a little off topic there. But yes, that's an embarrassing fact. I admit often. So inflammation, when I think of inflammation, I think of, yes, like inflamed flames, if you will. But I also think of, I used to think of inflammation as something that happens immediately after you injure yourself and only that. So I sprain my ankle and it swells up. That's what I used to think of inflammation. As you know, some of these listeners have heard, I got my gallbladder removed a year ago. That caused me to do a lot of research on inflammation, realize that there's so many ways in the body that inflammation impacts. And I think also it's important to realize not all inflammation is bad. So if you sprain your ankle, your body's doing what it's supposed to do and bringing in all the cells it needs to Mm -hmm. and the fluid and everything. But then there's chronic inflammation, which is what we typically associate with can lead to problems later in life, Alzheimer's being one, like a big one, and diabetes. Like a lot of these problems people are thinking of or coming to realize that they could be chronic inflammation problems. So I think of it in kind of a couple of different ways. One, you can get inflammation from having a leaky gut. So if you're eating a lot of things that are causing those tight junctions in your gut, which is the cell lining that you have in your gut, it's one cell thick. If you're eating a lot of things that are causing that barrier, which is so small, to erode away, you're allowing your body to make antibodies towards things that you wouldn't normally make antibodies towards. And when I say antibodies, that means something it thinks it needs to fight. It views Mm. it as foreign, something that shouldn't be there. So then you have an inflammatory response to Mm. these things. And that's when people think, of allergies. You have an allergic response to something that's not, it's not a threat. It's not something that's going to cause you harm, but your body, because you have a leaky gut, has now developed antibodies towards it because that cell layer that should be there to keep things, they should be in your stomach, but technically they're not being absorbed into your body Mm. right away. That barrier has been compromised and now you're making antibodies towards Mm. something. It shouldn't be 
a problem. Just a crazy thing to think about. So I'm asking this because yesterday I indulged and I had ruffles, maybe a few too many. And I try to stay away from that stuff as much as possible, but sometimes I just got to have a few. How many of bad foods do you have to have for it to cause a leaky gut? And is that damage irreversible with time? No, it's not irreversible. And the first part of your question is a little more complicated. Everyone's different. So I don't think there's one answer for every person. But with that being said, I think you can look at a few different kind of guidelines and kind of based on there the answer. So for one, if you're not getting enough sleep at night, this is just one example, your body is going to be stressed out. And I believe there are studies that have been shown that you can have increase in like leaky gut symptoms and things like that from having not proper sleep. So, and that goes along with stress too, right? So if you're like super stressed out, your immune systems just kind of run down anyway. They also believe that that can cause like leaky gut. And then there are certain foods you eat, like processed foods. So your ruffles, for instance, if that's what you ate like day in and day out, like that's got a lot of sugary carbs and it's a very processed mm-hmm. food with, I don't even know what the ingredient list looks right. like, but yeah. so there's no telling. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of things that in that that could probably over time contribute to leaky gut. But no, it's not irreversible. Leaky gut can be fixed. Okay, good. Okay. And just having one day of bad eating, you can... It's not the end of the world. If I'm going to indulge in something, I try to be very mindful of it and realize that if I'm having a pizza, try and recognize, I don't eat this every day, but I'm going to enjoy it. But I don't make that a daily thing or even a weekly thing. I, I try not to. But yeah, so one day of having your little indulgences isn't the end of the world. I have a question. Like someone like me, I have trouble sleeping. What would you suggest some tips of having a better night's sleep every day? Do you have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep? Falling asleep. Falling I asleep. feel like I just lay there. I have so much in my mind. I can't. Same. I feel restless. Are you able to get physical activity in throughout the day, like walking or do you, you have a workout regimen or anything? I try to go to the gym okay. once a day at least. Okay. Yesterday, for example, I went and I played basketball. Last night, I went to bed at 1 a.m. I mean, I think basketball, something like that's a great form of exercise. You're playing with other people. That's a good way to interaction. As far as like staying asleep, I think it's good to establish a routine. So like I call it sleep hygiene, and that's what we called it in nursing school. So basically trying to make sure you start getting ready to go to bed at the same time. I try not to eat more than two hours before I'm about to go to sleep. And that's because you want your body, you don't want it busy with digesting something. I mean, it still might be towards the end of it and moving through, but like you don't want all your blood flow being right to your stomach. You kind of want your body like not focused on that. It should be repairing itself at this point. I definitely ate. Okay. Like 30 minutes before I went. Yeah. Well, and being cognizant if like if you drink tea or coffee, like coffee or I want to say caffeine, I don't get affected by caffeine too much. I'm sure I have like a snip that I don't process it. I'm pretty quick at processing it. I don't think that affects me because I'll drink coffee like at four in the afternoon and I drink a half calf because I'm still breastfeeding. So I don't yeah. ever drink a ton of caffeine, but still like I can drink it probably before I went to bed and be fine. But if you're sensitive to caffeine, then that's something you want to be mindful of. So I don't know if that's something that you, if you drink tea or coffee or anything with caffeine. Yeah, I drink tea and coffee, usually okay. black, both no sugar, okay. uh, no creamer or well, anything. Well, that's good. And if you drink it throughout the day, I would try to switch to maybe an herbal tea sometime like maybe around noon or two o'clock, just because if you are sensitive to it, your body might still be processing it. And that could be a reason you have trouble falling asleep. So that's another thing you can do. And then I've heard of people doing deep breathing exercises 
exercises before they're ready to go to sleep. And one odd tip, and I didn't learn this in like my functional medicine classes or anything, but it was you started at the top of your body and like tightening every muscle, your head down to your shoulders, like as tight as you can, squeezing and squeezing and holding them for like 20, 30 seconds, as long as you can. Then move down your muscle groups on your arms till you get to your hands and then move down your midsection, your torso, your glutes, then your thighs and all these big major muscles all the way down to your toes. Hopefully not getting a cramp because like that's not (laughs) fun before you're going to bed. So that's a good way to like just relieve that tension and then take slow, deep breaths. And it's called progressive relaxation. Okay, yeah. So I'm sure it does have a name. Yeah, I'm not sure. I I think that sounds right. But that's a good thing to do. And doing that two or three times even, and it sounds like a lot, it really gets you into a good relaxed state and hopefully slowing your mind. And then also box breathing is a really good thing to do. And basically with box breathing, you inhale for five seconds slowly. It slowly inhale five, hold that for five, five seconds. And then slowly exhale for five seconds and hold that at the bottom for five seconds. So I just think of myself going in a box and, you know, five seconds, five seconds, five seconds and doing as many reps as you can. So like one rep obviously is 20 seconds. So you can do three repetitions in a minute. Right. And do that for like three or four minutes. And that just really there's some scientific reason behind it that I can't spout off to you right now. This is awesome. Thank you for these tips. Yeah. No, they're real helpful. And I actually take melatonin at night. Melatonin can be a great antioxidant and also it signals to your body that it's time for sleep. Take it about an hour before you plan to be in bed. And I would quit using a device at least 30 minutes before, 30 minutes after you take the melatonin, I would be off your device and kind of winding down. You don't want to be up like moving around a ton because you want to give it a chance to work because that melatonin, what it does, it doesn't make you stay asleep. It's not a sleeping pill. It signals to your brain that it's time for sleep. Basically, if you're not producing enough melatonin, this is a good little boost to help your body think, oh, yeah, I need to I need to be in bed. Wind down, do the box breathing, do the progressive relaxation. Those are those are good starting points. You also, before we started recording, mentioned tips for mothers trying to start healthy habits at an early age and and just the little things you can do. So I'd love to hear about some of those. Sure. When I had our daughter, when we had our daughter, definitely more the one that's into nutrition. What's her name? Uh, Evelyn. Evelyn. I I follow Sunny on Instagram and she's so cute. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. So I knew nutrition was had been so important to me. I knew that I wanted to raise her eating real whole foods. I do give her pouches every now and then. If you look on the back, it's all just real foods that's pureed up in them. There's no preservatives. There's nothing you couldn't find like in your fridge or pantry something like that. And I don't give her any gluten-containing grains. I don't give her added sugar. With her, I think we started about six months, and I started doing sweet potato. And then I'd mix in a little bit of almond butter, things like that, just to see if she liked it. And she loves food, so (laughs) it's it's great. Like When I left the house a little bit ago, she was eating taco meat I made last night, grass-fed ground beef with organic tomatoes, and I had chopped up some squash and zucchini, and it was I had a little bit of cayenne, but she kind of likes spicy food. So. Interesting. Yeah, anyway, so she was having that with some squash and zucchini, and I don't give her anything but organic, mainly the study you cited before about the pediatric mm-hmm. saying that having glyphosate before, I, her system's so immature that I just, you know, I have to make sure to give her all organic yeah. and stuff like that for now. That's interesting. The cayenne, I don't think I developed a taste for spicy food until three years ago. Really? really? Like, I'm 26. I mean, I liked spicy, but not 
like cayenne's really spicy. And I didn't add too much to it, but there's definitely a tiny kick to it. Well, that's good. I've been learning a little bit just on my own research about Chinese medicine. And I'm not an expert in this, but I learned that their philosophy is that you should stay away from cold foods. Mm -hmm. And cold foods aren't, they don't literally mean the temperature of the food. They mean cold in terms of spices. They recommend adding some cayenne or something like that to warm it up and that has a good response in your body. Right. And the cayenne, I I believe it has the capsaicin in it, which is supposed to have like good effects on your body. I think spices in general, like you want your foods to have like a lot of spices and it doesn't have to be Mm -hmm. hot spicy, but like adding different, you know, garlic powder, fresh garlic even, and adding herbs to it, like all those things. And the Chinese medicine dates Uh back many years. So they knew this, that adding herbs and different things like that to your foods can really enhance the the not medicinal, but like nutritional properties of your foods. And you can be, you know, really helping yourself just with some of those things and making your food taste good too. That's another thing. Your vegetables don't have to be boring. Right. (laughs) They can be really flavorful. Yeah. And who likes boring vegetables? Yeah. And my daughter loves vegetables. So like another thing as far as feeding your family, I try to, you know, she likes asparagus and things that she can hold and grab. Uh And so that's where we are with her right now. But I'm trying to introduce her to as many as I can to hopefully like broaden her palate and let her know that these aren't grown up foods. These right. are these are foods that everyone should eat. I think we have kind of the stigma for little kids that give them little kid food. They just need like the kid food. Well, most of that kid food's fake food <laughs> when it comes down to it. It's like, how can we, f- I can't fathom feeding her that after yeah. knowing what I know about all the processed foods that there are. Like it just seems bizarre, like, but we have that kind of stigma again. Totally. That, Like, that's what they need. I feel like this is all very new information that people are aware of. My mom always fed me very healthy food compared to, you know, most Americans, I'd say. Very good about healthy foods. Still in the 90s, there just wasn't this kind of information. So, like, what caused you to research this stuff and become interested in in functional medicine? I'd always been interested in nutrition. We are coming off a decade in the 80s when Harvard scientists were paid off by sugar companies to say that sugar wasn't bad and that that was the bad thing. We're still kind of riding that F sugar. Yeah. So F- we're, <laughs> we're still coming off that because think about all the foods. Like now you find sugar in absolutely everything. Yes. In your tomato sauce. I mean, just anything. Everything, everything has sugar in it when it makes no sense to have Don't sugar even get it. me started, Sunny, on yeah. the sugar train. We well, are so passionate about yeah. F sugar. Well, and That's you were talking here. about, you know, your mom feeding you well in the mm-hmm. 90s. Well, what information did we have to go off? We were told by Harvard scientists yep. that sugar was okay. They knew otherwise. So it's really unsettling that money is such a big factor, you know, to a lot of people. And I just I can't imagine doing that because a lot of experts will say now that happening in the 80s has set our country up for obesity epidemic, diabetes epidemic, which those go hand in hand. So it's really scary that I think it's one in two people will be diabetic by like the year 2050 or something like that. And that's, it's just really frightening. So all this information that is functional medicine, it's not entirely new, but people learning about it is new because Mm -hmm. we were told for so long that sugar is okay. Like eat these processed foods. That's fine. But now we're understanding like the gravity of the situation and functional medicine is really kind of making a reemergence. 
Quick question about sugars. How do you feel about natural sugars in fruit than added sugar in cereal? They're definitely different um, because it's fructose in the fruits and everything. I think too much of anything is not always a good thing. So, And that even applies to fruits. You can have too much sugar just from a general standpoint. I try to eat mostly berries. And that's not to say any fruit's not a good fruit. Like all fruits are fine. If I'm going to eat a lot of fruits, it'll be berries that are fruits that have a low glycemic index. Just because that insulin spike or in response to eating a lot of sugar is what you kind of want to stay away from. It would be ideal for your blood sugar to really not veer very far off of like you know, it's it's like baseline, so to speak. That's when you get that like crash feeling. Mm-hmm. Like after lunch, if you've had like, a huge cheeseburger with fries, right. like there's so much sugar in it. And the same can, you won't have the exact same response with a piece of fruit because you're getting that fiber and you're getting antioxidants. So you can't say that, or I can't say that all fruits are bad. They're, they're not bad, but you don't want your entire diet to be just fruit-based. So if that makes sense. I had to also educate myself on this after I had my gallbladder removed. I had sensitivities to things that I didn't have sensitivities to before I had it taken out. And one of those was fruit. And as it turns out, I'm very sensitive to fructose. So I have my sweet boyfriend, shout out to Sam, printed out a fructose index of all of the fruits. And I pretty much only eat berries now. Well, and they're so high in antioxidants. So I won't say that's a bad thing that you limit to berries, especially with having your gallbladder out and everything. So that's good. But And it's so nice you're aware of it, though, and that you can be kind of proactive with that. The moment I realized it, I was I was on the treadmill eating a little bit that day, but, you know, maybe a little breakfast. But it was enough hours to where I was pretty much on an empty stomach and I had brought my apple and I was on the treadmill and I thought I was being super healthy. About an hour later, when I was starting to digest it, I had the worst stomach ache. As I learned, fruits just, I don't want to say it's bad for us, but there's a lot of misinformation. And correct me if I'm wrong about fruit. People I've read on, I follow this hashtag, hashtag food is medicine on Instagram. And I come across these graphics sometimes that say, first thing in the morning, eat a big bowl of fruit. Or I've come across things that say, only eat fruit for a week. That's not good. It kind of startles me too. Yeah. There's a book that people will reference when they say eat fruit first thing in the morning or on an empty stomach. And I, I can't think of the name of the book, but it goes through its rationale for why that's a good thing. Something about it, the fruit doesn't set in your stomach, which to me, I can't quite figure out the logic. Anyway, someone please let me know if if I'm wrong. (laughs) When you eat fruit first thing, like fruits are great and they are natural. Awesome. But they do have a lot of sugar. So your, your blood sugar is still going to spike. It's still fruit, fructose. Your body will still have like a response to that. So if you're eating a huge bowl of fruit, you're going to get sugar. I read something not very long ago that said, if you have a meal, try to eat the proteins and like the leafy greens first. And then if you have like a sweet potato, eat that last because that's going to allow your body to start processing everything and that the sugars from the sweet potato aren't going to jump in first and like spike your blood sugar. There are times that I can't help myself but eat the sweet potato fries first. And I make them in an air fryer. So hopefully they're pretty healthy with avocado oil. But sometimes I can't help myself. But (laughs) usually I try to do that where I eat the the starchy food or whatever that might have more sugar in it. Eat it after I've had the protein and the the leafy greens or whatever we're having. Interesting. I know in Europe, sometimes they have the salad as the dessert. I have. I saw that a few places. 
But we, I mean, we visited a lot of countries. So I have seen that though. And I'm not sure. I guess they think it's a good cleanser. I'm not, yeah. not positive. But yeah. I'm sure what the background is on that. Tell us more about the gut and ways that people could fix their gut or just make little improvements to their gut microbiome. Sure. And when I'm dealing with a client, like starting with the gut to me is essential because I believe that all health does start in the gut. I started reading Dr. David Perlmutter's book, The Grain Brain. That was the first book that I read about functional medicine. And it was a serious rabbit hole. Like once you start going down it, which I'm sure you know, you're Mm -hmm. along this journey now, but it was just like a whole new world to me. And I you know, went to nursing school and I'd always been interested in like nutrition and things like that. But this was a completely new world. So learning about that was amazing. But his whole premise about this is everything does begin in the gut and not taking care of your gut can lead to detrimental diseases further down the line. Anything from multiple sclerosis to dementia, Alzheimer's is what his dad dealt with. And so that's what started him on his journey to like... Mm figure out what he can do to help prevent this terrible disease that is also increasing in number. But yeah, so starting in the gut, I think, is such an important thing. And there's so many little things people don't even realize they can do. When you're buying produce or anything like that, sticking to the dirty dozen and clean 15, so obviously avoiding the dirty dozen unless it's organic. I think strawberries or spinach was number one on the environmental working groups list. Oh, I don't know about the dirty dozen. Oh, okay. Well, I don't have the list in front of me, but if you Google it, um, the Environmental Working Group has a list. And I think they come out every year and they do studies on all the produce and they'll find out which ones are the most heavily sprayed with glyphosate. And these are the non-organic foods that they do this on. That's why they're the Dirty Dozen. And you find out which ones have the most. And is it nationally or is it like global? I think nationally. I found them. Should I Yeah, no, go ahead. I want you to keep that thought though, just for listeners, because I'm interested in this too. Strawberries, spinach, kale, nectarines, apples, grapes, peaches, cherries, pears, tomatoes, celery, and potatoes. A lot of vegetables in there too. So like kale, people think, oh, I'm going to the store being healthy, getting kale. Spinach. Yeah, spinach. I eat a lot of spinach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so buy it organic. And I consider those some of my like non-negotiables things I eat every day. Like spinach, I'll usually have in a smoothie strawberries I've been buying for my daughter because I give her some berries. So I make sure those are always organic. And then there's the Clean 15, which if you want to look it up, like I think asparagus is one of the ones on the Clean 15. So if you if you're in a pinch and, you know, maybe you don't want to splurge on that organic asparagus, I mean, it's only like a dollar or two difference. It's not that big a deal. But, um, you know, for the if you're tight budgeter, I totally applaud you. Asparagus is one that if you clean it really well, it has less of that like glyphosate residue found on it. So that's another one to look at if someone wants to be kind of like a savvy shopper and be good about their produce. Those are that. So that's one area, like one facet of gut health that you can address because glyphosate is so terrible for your gut. Obviously, it kills plants. It doesn't do the same thing in our body. It inhibits a certain enzyme that our body needs or that cells need to function. It just, I mean, it deteriorates that cell lining and you have leaky gut and then a whole host of other problems leading down to like lymphomas and mantle cell lymphomas and lots of terrible things. And going back to the money, you're saving a lot more money in the long run from medical expenses instead of just, like you said, spending a dollar or two on organic compared to non-organic. That's a great point because a lot of people will say, oh, well, the food's so expensive. In my head, I'm always thinking, well, like my health to me is a priority. Like I don't want to be sick 
20 years from now having to be in and out of the hospital for who knows what. So I think you're going to pay for, you know, where your priorities are, so to speak. And a lot of people aren't informed. So that's where I'm hoping, you know, with social media and hopefully with, you know, the news in the upcoming years, they'll be a little more like truthful about these actual epidemics that are going on and what we can do to help prevent them and reverse them. So because they've had a lot of good evidence, like support with helping diabetic patients, you know, come off a lot of medications and balancing their blood sugars and uh, even reducing or reversing like the pre-diabetic patients. Like you can like you can reverse pre-diabetes. It's not easy. That's not to say that it's a walk in the park, but it can be done. There's also another doctor who's been very influential to me, and that's Dr. Terry Walls. I don't know if you've heard of her. She wrote a book called The Walls Protocol. So she's she's an MD, and she was diagnosed with progressive progressive MS. And so she got to the point to where she couldn't even like walk. She was wheelchair bound, but she started doing research. What can I do to help myself? Because nothing else is working. She started eating a diet and I I haven't read the book yet. I'm embarrassed to say that, but I have it. I just haven't read it yet. I know kind of what it's about, like her journey through healing herself with food. And she ate a lot of grass fed like meats and a lot of fish, a lot of leafy greens, you know, just went to town on the leafy greens and all this food like that. And she slowly like, I think within three months, she was riding her bike again. So like made the transition from being wheelchair bound to riding her bike. Obviously, she got up and walked and she was using a cane for a while. But within a few months, she pulled herself. So it's amazing what food can do. But that doesn't sell because it's not profitable for pharmaceutical companies for people to heal themselves with food. (laughs) So yeah, so that was an inspiration for me. Some other things that people can do to help with heal their gut. uh, Removing processed foods is very important. There's usually a lot of preservatives in them, a lot of added sugar. The extra added sugar in foods can give you something it's called gut dysbiosis. And what that means is that sugar is feeding the bacteria in your food, or not in your food, the bacteria in your gut that that you don't want. So you've got like good and bad bacteria in your gut. And basically, when you feed those bad bacteria, you get an overgrowth of them. And when you get the overgrowth, then you have dysbiosis. So if that makes sense, because it's like you've got more bad than the good and you want to balance. Your gut needs to have a good balance. And if you don't have that balance, then you're going to have more of these bad bacteria that are fed by the sugar. That's why having too much sugar in your diet can cause like leaky gut or something like that. So those are a couple good tips. Dairy is another one that's kind of controversial. I would say, and it's a tough one because yeah. who doesn't love cheese? I rarely eat cheese, I would say. If I do eat it, it's raw and it's usually either sheep's or goat's cheese because it still has, that the enzymes are still active in it. It's also a different type of protein that's in those cheeses, whereas like cattle nowadays have been bred to mass produce milk and it's a certain type of protein that like we don't digest very well mm. anymore. I believe they're A1 Protein is like the type of protein that we don't digest well, and that's what the majority of cattle are. Now, A2, supposedly, people digest better, but I still try and stick with sheep or goat's milk and have it raw. So I don't know. But so dairy is one. Like people react to dairy a lot, and they just cause inflammation. Exactly. They just might not realize it, though, because they've had it for so long and like had these 
you know, small symptoms for so long that they didn't realize that that could be a problem. Anyway, and then gluten for me is a big one. I started eating gluten-free probably two years ago. I mean, like I said, I'll have pizza every once in a while, a sandwich, I don't know, anything, but it's definitely not a staple in my diet. I don't give it to my daughter because that one gluten has been shown to like cause leaky gut. And we know that for a fact. And once you have the leaky gut, it you'll respond to so many like then you'll start responding to dairy building the antibodies that mm-hmm. we were talking about to to the dairy so i think people have like very good like responses to removing dairy and gluten so those are those are two big things so that's i mean to me kind of gut health in a nutshell and then like healing the gut you can look at things like bone broth is very healing it's mm-hmm. got those good the good collagen those good amino acids that's very healing you're asking if it's irreversible if the gut health damage is and it's definitely reversible not irreversible mm-hmm. so there are a lot of little things you can do like removing all those bad things having more collagen the bone broth's very healing and then eating prebiotic fiber and taking a probiotic so prebiotic fiber is things like Jerusalem artichokes and asparagus and garlic and things, it feeds those good bacteria in your guts. So when we were talking about the good and bad bacteria, these prebiotic fibers feed the good bacteria. So that's probiotics don't feed your good bacteria. I think there's a misconception there to some people. Probiotics are great. I think, you know, uh, for the most part, like people will do well on them. They're, you know, have them in yogurt. I eat coconut yogurt and it's got, you know, good probiotics in it. You've got to get those prebiotics in there because that's what actually feeds those bacteria. If you just add more of the probiotics, you're adding more of the good bacteria that doesn't necessarily feed the ones that you have. Like you want to cultivate them and grow them and like feed them while you nourish them. Right. That all makes sense. So much good information. I learned a lot, especially the dirty dozen and the clean Fifteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's and it comes out every year. And the Environmental Working Group is a great website and a good wealth of knowledge. You can look up different products on there and see kind of what it rates on their scale. Uh, is that a good product to use? Like what's in it that's that's questionable? And it'll kind of like list out, itemize the ingredient list and tell you is it carcinogenic? Is it like an irritant to people? Like if they breathe it in or to right. the eyes, is, does it irritate your eyes? So that's a good one. And then the Think Dirty app is also another good, really good resource for like cosmetics or just something you use okay. every day. So you can know what you're putting on your skin, right. what you're putting on your face every day. Yeah, It's really helpful. Well, you've been so helpful. <laughs> and if people want to find you, where can they look? I am on Instagram at Sunnyside Wellness. I have a website, sunnysidewellness.com. My email's on there. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming. This has been such a great conversation. I've enjoyed it. And stay tuned. We'll see you guys next time.